Good evening, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tectonic. My name is Mark Hurst. I will be your host for the next hour here on WFMU, Freeform Station of the Nation from downtown Jersey City in the great state of New Jersey. I'm happy to be with you. And I am happy that you are with me here, now, and in the future. For those of you listening to the archives and or podcast, welcome one and all. If you are listening in the future, you can find the playlist and comments of today's show at the one-page Tectonic site, T-E-C-H-Tonic.fm. That's Tectonic.fm. Find the August 8, 2022 show. I am really happy to present you with a really interesting interview today with a return guest, James Bridal, author and artist. Bridal was on Tectonic uh, almost exactly four years ago, back in August of 2018. It was August 13, 2018, talking about the previous book, that uh, Bridal wrote, which was New Dark Age, Technology and the End of the Future. And this book is a kind of a follow-up to New Dark Age, although it expands the, the inquiry quite a bit. Uh, th- this new book is called Ways of Being, Animals, Plants, Machines, The Search for a Planetary Intelligence. And I was really uh, engaged in all three of those subcategories as I read through the book, animals, plants, and machines, and the intelligence and the, as Bridal puts it, the other intelligences that are apparent in all three of those. And you'll hear in the interview that I'm about to play for you, we cover animals of a sort. We're going to start with the slime mold. And then uh, we um, move to, well, actually, I, I suppose that's closer to plants, uh, the slime mold. And then later on, we'll, we'll move to a particular animal in the Bronx Zoo. And then finally, we're going to talk about machines. And I have a little bit of a question around intelligence and machines. And uh, I really enjoyed this interview, uh, front to back. And I appreciate James Bridal for coming back on the show. Let's go ahead and listen to this interview. If you'd like to join in the live listener chat, go to WFMU.org, click playlist and comments, and you can join the other listeners who are chatting away right now. Let's hear my interview with James Bridal, author of Ways of Being, here on Tectonic on WFMU. James Bridal, welcome to Tectonic. Thanks so much for having me. Nice to be back. You were first on the show almost exactly four years ago, back in August 2018, talking about your previous book, New Dark Age. Today you're back to talk about your new book, Ways of Being, Animals, Plants, Machines, The Search for a Planetary Intelligence. This is a provocative book that ranges much further, I would say, than the earlier book, while still maintaining some of the themes of that earlier book. Maybe we'll get into that. But let's talk about ways of being. As the subtitle suggests, you're searching for what you call a planetary intelligence among animals, plants, and machines. Maybe we can start with a favorite example of mine, which is recent research on the slime mold. What was revealed from research experiments? So slime molds are these really weird little critters They don't fit neatly into any existing biological categories or family trees, those kind of things. Uh, They're somewhere kind of between amoebae and the kind of algae, fungi type things. They're little single-celled creatures that live on forest floors and on old bits of wood. And they have a bunch of weird characteristics. Like they um, they usually exist as kind of these free-floating single-celled organisms, but sometimes when food is scarce or uh, sometimes a year, they'll kind of come together into these big communities, uh, some of which will then turn into kind of fruiting bodies and other bits will just kind of decay away. So they, they kind of go between the kind of individual and, and the communal in ways that also trouble some of our ideas about what constitutes an individual. But it turns out they have a particular set of abilities that's really extraordinary is that they're basically very, very good at route planning, finding the most efficient way between resources. And a few years ago, some researchers in Tokyo 
basically mocked up a kind of little map of the Tokyo region on a Petri dish with like some oat flakes, uh, which uh, slime molds love to eat. And they use kind of bits of light, which slime mold doesn't like to mark kind of mountains and rivers and places where it was hard to build, essentially. And within 24 hours, the slime mold basically recreated the Tokyo area transit network, one of the busiest and most complex regional transit networks in the world that's taken human engineers 100 years to figure out how to make in quite an efficient pattern. The slime mold figured this out, the ways to connect different cities most efficiently in, in, in 24 hours. But it, go, it goes further than that as well. There's a thing in computer science called the traveling salesman problem. Basically, given a list of cities, how do you visit all of them only once uh, in the shortest possible distance? And this is actually a really, really hard problem because there's no easy way. You can't kind of guess it. Uh, you have basically to measure every option. And there's so many options. If you've got five cities, there's five times four times three times two times one cities. That's already a huge number, but it also increases massively every time you add another city, because then it's six times five times four times three times two times one and so on. So it's called an exponential problem. It gets much, much harder at every step. And these are the kind of problems that um, that people and computers really suck at. Uh, but turns out, once again, the slime mold is, is better than all of us at this. Uh, slime molds can solve the traveling salesman problem in linear time, which means it doesn't seem to get any harder for them at each step, every time a new city or node is added. So they're basically better at this very complex mathematical computational problem than either humans or the best supercomputers we've ever built. And we don't really know how they do it. And also they just, you know, they just do it. Like <laughs> it's just a thing that they do, almost like, you know, party trick kind of basic survival. And it makes me wonder what more they can do if we knew how to ask them like more interesting and complex questions as well. Well, you do spend some time talking about analog computers. These were early computers uh, developed in the Soviet Union and elsewhere that used not binary arithmetic and microprocessors, the sorts of innards that we're used to today in our computers and smartphones. But in one case that you talked about, a Soviet uh, researcher developed a computer that used water. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So these were these were the Soviet water computers developed kind of from the 1930s onwards. Uh, they were originally built by someone who was working on a, a series of railways in Siberia, uh, where they had a lot of problems with like concrete that they were pouring, uh, cracking in the summer and freezing in the winter, and uh, they needed to model like the thermal flow within this material and the kind of differential equations required for that were just not possible on the computers or kind of calculating machines of the time. And so they built this series of water computers or hydrological computers. There's basically loads and loads and loads of tubes filled with water and tubes of varying kind of thickness that all connect up in such a way that basically if you add bits of water to one bit, it will change the water level in other places. You can basically read the solutions to these differential equations off these kind of columns of water. And yeah, these computers were actually turned out to be so successful that they were adapted for many, many uses, not just for this kind of particular thermal problem, but all kinds of complex mathematics. And they were in use in, in Soviet institutions up until the 80s at least, um, because they were so good at like, particular sets of problems. And yeah, eventually we did build computers that were capable of handling these kind of things digitally. But there's something very interesting about these kind of hydrological computers, as you said, in that they operate in this kind of non-binary fashion. You write in the introduction of the book that the idea of forming new relationships with non-human intelligences is the central theme of this book. Then you go on to say that those relationships constitute our utter entanglement with the more-than-human world. That word entanglement appears, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it appears in every chapter of the book, uh, as does probably this, this phrase, the more than human world. These are recurring ideas. Whether it's relationships with these other intelligences or, as you call it, entanglement, what are you asking us to do as a society? Well, as a society, um, we need to recover those relationships. And it's, you know, to note that they are, that this is largely a, a disease and a, a pathology of, of the West, of European and American societies, of the kind of children of the Enlightenment and the scientific method, and is not really news to people who live in uh, more traditional cosmologies. Um, but speaking, speaking to that, 
the greatest lesson of ecology in general and of these more poetical perhaps ways of speaking of it as the this entanglement with the more than human world is that our survival depends on one another utterly and totally we are made with one another in the sense that we, we only survive because of the survival of other beings on this planet um 50 of the human genome has been written in to it into our dna codes from other beings from other species we're not this kind of like linear descent this is what the kind of last hundred years of biology has has revealed to us but we're kind of this amazing mismatch of other being even within our own bodies we carry around kind of two and a half kilos of other creatures in our gut and in our armpits um primarily and uh, and those those beings crucially affect us moment by moment they affect our moods uh, they affect our intelligence uh, they they have this kind of direct connection to our brains so we're barely even individuals at all and we're certainly not uh, the kind of as coherent a species as we would like to think but also more broadly collapses in biodiversity threaten our survival in every way like we can't survive alone on this planet all of which builds to um the need for a new kind of politics that acknowledges that and finds a way to um give value to and respect um the lives of all other species that exist and that you know means everything from fundamental animal rights to actually engage political processes in which non-humans are meaningful actors and in the book i talk quite a lot about the ways in which animals and increasingly plants and even whole ecosystems constitute uh, or do politics already and constitute political actors and the ways in which we can work further to kind of bring them into our society level of decision making uh, which i think is fundamentally necessary if we're going to live according to the the kind of ecological thinking that we have to for us and everybody else to survive and i should note that we're, we're talking somewhat philosophically right now about the themes of the book but this book is really threaded through with case studies and examples after examples there there's uh, a lot of really fascinating uh, research and experience even your personal experience that you're drawing on to make these cases talking about the entanglement with other species it brings to mind here in the new york city area one of the case studies you wrote about was uh, happy the elephant at the bronx zoo which uh, there is an ongoing case of, I believe, a nonprofit. The Non-Human Rights Project. Non-Human Rights Project, thank you, that has an ongoing initiative, a, a legal case, trying to get Happy the Elephant released from the Bronx Zoo. And the case that they're making is one of Happy's rights. Can you say a little bit about how that case and other cases like it on behalf of other animals and ecosystems are, are being constructed? Yeah, so the, this is a, one of several test cases, well, not test cases, but several active cases brought by uh, something called the Non-Human Rights Project, which is, there's, a, there's various people trying to do versions of this, but this, this is a very interesting one. And they're essentially trying to get happy moved out of the pretty brutal concrete enclosure they've lived in for the last 20 years in, in the Bronx Zoo, moved to somewhere more pleasant. And the, and the, the way to do this is to um, assert some kind of legal rights on Happy's behalf. So rather than purchasing Happy and continuing his kind of role as, sorry, her role as property, but to actually say that this is for Happy's benefit, not just because humans say it should happen. And the way they're going about this is they're trying to get Happy granted legal status before a court, legal personhood, essentially. Because if Happy is a legal person, then they will have rights. Um, this, is, this is how the legal system works, essentially. And they've largely made the case based on Happy's, on, on the cognitive qualities of elephants. The fact that they are complex, imaginative, creative, social beings deserving of rights. And several times, judges have basically agreed with that, but still refused to grant legal personhood, essentially because they're scared of the consequences of doing so. That's pretty much what it says in the, in the legal reports. And you can kind of understand the, the why they were, because it would be this massive, huge legal precedent. Except in certain ways, it also wouldn't, um, because US and other laws already recognize legal personhood for non-humans. Uh, corporations are legal persons. The state of New York is a legal person. Ships are legal persons. And also, though obviously this is under attack in all kinds of ways, some humans are not legal persons, notably fetuses. So 
like the law is not as clear cut as as opponents of this effort would like to present it as. Um, and, and so that's ongoing and the case is ongoing with happy and with various chimpanzees and there's been various versions of that. But it's very interesting that happy has played this kind of ongoing role within our kind of adjudication of other species as brutal as it's been. And um, I, for one, hope for her release as soon as possible. But also, I again, also in the book I critique because I am interested in these ideas, this approach of granting legal personhood or this kind of legal approach to uh, non-human life and liberty. Well, I think it's really good that it's happening and it should continue. Um, it's also always going to be fundamentally insufficient because legal systems constructed for the benefit of some human beings, which has always been the case, you know, uh, we know how, you know, many, many humans were not legal persons for a very, very long time and are still not really considered to be such. But counterexamples are interesting. The particularly interesting case is the case of the Wanganui River in New Zealand, where after decades, if not centuries of activism by the indigenous Maori peoples, the Wanganui River and its kind of environs have been granted legal personhood. And what's interesting about that, I think, kind of compared to the happy case, is that um, the law was actually changed. It wasn't just this kind of, the river is now a person within this kind of existing legal system. There was a kind of accommodation made between New Zealand crown law and um, uh, Maori cosmology, in which Maori elders were recognised as being qualified to kind of speak for the river and to kind of adjudicate what was good for the river. And these traditional knowledges and understandings were given legal standing, not just kind of brought in as a subset of a kind of existing legal system. So there's many, many ways of doing this, and there's many ways of understanding what personhood could mean legally and otherwise. But the general thrust is all towards understanding the needs and desires of plants, animals, whole ecosystems on their own terms, rather than as being simply like, what do we need to do to them because it's good for us? And as a kind of corollary to that happy story with human lawyers arguing in defense of this animal's rights, you have a, a different story. And I hadn't heard anything about this one. I found this fascinating. The iguanas of Guantanamo Bay, you write, and I'm not quoting here, but from, from memory, you, you suggest that the iguanas were given a role of arguing the case in favor of the human prisoners. Is it true that it came about due to a 60 Minutes interview and some producers noticed while they were down there doing interviews, they noticed some iguanas running through the prison? Yeah, they, they did. And they noticed all these signs around saying, like, you can't touch the iguanas, the iguanas have right of way, all this kind of stuff. Don't eat the iguanas, which, which apparently Cubans do outside the base. And the reason for that is that the iguanas are protected under US law. And the producers noticed this, and they told one of the lawyers who was working for detainees at Guantanamo, because the foundation of the US is it the Department of Justice case to basically allow those people to be tortured uh, and detained indefinitely was that US law didn't apply in Guantanamo. And this was obviously a complete legal paradox, which couldn't stand where, so, you know, US environmental law applied to the iguanas, but US, you know, custodial law didn't apply to the people. And they took this all the way to the Supreme Court. And, and actually, there's a, in the transcripts of the testimony, there's a moment when a one of the government lawyers tries to argue the US laws don't apply. And the judge says, like, oh, don't try and tell me that because I know it applies to the iguanas. And if it applies to the iguanas, it applies to people as well. So it's like, yeah, I could talk about it a little bit as though the iguanas are kind of speaking, speaking for humans, but it's, it's also a larger point that your know, rights go both ways. And giving rights to animals is not just a sort of philanthropic act on our behalf. It's, it's, a, it's a mutual act in which we all gain something from the recognition of the personhood of others. And that, again, also applies much, much more broadly to our kind of relationships in general, or, for example, to kind of definitions of intelligence that I talk about in, in the book. When we broaden and widen our understanding of the world and the definitions we use to describe it, we're all enriched. We all find and experience a, a larger world. And that, to me, is incredibly exciting and as I keep saying also incredibly necessary and as that awareness continues to expand 
we reach a point where we're discussing personhood beyond animals and plants, but to the third item in your subtitle, which is machines. This is a point at which some of your arguments I felt, well, directionally across the book, I agree with where you're headed, James. But in some of these examples, especially on machines, because this hits my own, some of my own hobby horses of the meaning of AIs and AI personhood and so on, I think we may see things in a different way. So maybe this will be an interesting bit of difference to, to explore. Let's start with an example that I thought you brought up very nicely, and I think we're, we're well aligned on this. A few years ago in 2017, there's a robot named Sophia that was granted legal citizenship by the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. The moment that news broke, I thought it was ridiculous because this robot called Sophia, to my understanding, is basically a fairly low-tech chatbot that is connected by actuators to a plasticine face that makes some strange-looking expressions. A chatbot with a few actuators, to me, is not a, that's not a person, and it does not merit legal personhood, still less in Saudi Arabia, where, as you rightly point out, the rights of female humans are already in great need of, of improvement. So can we start there, James? Sophia, what happened with Sophia being granted personhood, and, and do you think that was the right thing? Uh, I mean, it wasn't the right thing, but it also wasn't a thing. It was a PR stunt and remains one. It's like, it's not even, it, you know, the fact that it happened in Saudi is is the kind of a hideously painful aspect of the whole thing. But if it happened anywhere, it would be just as ridiculous. Uh, it's it's a meaningless stunt. And I, but I do I think it reflects on the fact that we have such poor thinking, I guess, in general about the nature of AI. But that's that's always been a big part of my fascination with it. Like we don't. There's nothing approaching general artificial intelligence in existence. By general artificial intelligence, I mean, yeah, well, what do I mean? That's part of the question as well. I mean something that basically approximates human intelligence because that's how we've always judged intelligence. And that's always been really what our imagination of AI consists of, basically something that's like a human brain in a box. You can play with that idea all you like, but that is the cultural idea, I think, that stands at the heart of our fascination with AI, which I think is really fascinating. And we don't have anything like that at the moment. What we do have on the one hand is we have a huge number of specialized kind of weird interesting AIs doing particular things that crucially aren't doing them in the way that humans do them and that I find to be incredibly fascinating and is actually one of the kind of spurs that set me off down this path of trying to understand this kind of relationship between things like AI and things like ecology we've constructed a bunch of intelligences that are at play in the world to whatever degree, and they're not like human intelligences. And that should mostly serve to remind us that human intelligence is not the only way of doing intelligence. You know, and if there's more than one way of doing intelligence, then there are infinite ways of doing intelligence. And that's, you know, what I largely concern myself with in the book. But one of the outcomes of thinking about that quite a lot, as I also detail in the book, is that um, I no longer really think of intelligence as being a singular quality of any kind, and, and certainly not an individual internal quality. You know, I, I came to understand intelligence as something that exists both as an embodied quality, i.e. through the whole of the body, not just kind of in the head, uh, but also primarily as a relational quality, as something that emerges out of relationships, out of encounters between bodies and beings, uh, rather than purely internally to them. And, and so also by the end, I'm also kind of done with the term artificial intelligence, uh, or at least I put very large quotes around the word artificial, because if intelligence is something that emerges out of encounters and relationships, then there can be nothing artificial about it. It kind of exists or it doesn't. Just the term AI is basically a way of keeping up that firewall between us and other beings, machinic or biological, to say that whatever anyone else does, it's not real intelligence, that only human intelligence really counts. And, you know, it's crucial that we get away from that way of thinking. And we're back. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Tectonic on WFMU. My name is Mark Hurst. I'm your host, and we are halfway through my interview with James Bridle, who just wrote a new book 
called Ways of Being, Animals, Plants, Machines, The Search for a Planetary Intelligence. And right there you heard Bridal talking about the kinds of intelligence that he means, uh, not so much the popular conceptions of so-called artificial intelligence, but more embodied and relational types of intelligence. And Bridal says, human intelligence is not the only intelligence out there. All good points. If you'd like to join in the live listener chat, go to WFMU.org, click playlists and comments. And let's go ahead and listen to the second half of my interview with James Bridal here on Tectonic on WFMU. I think Marvin Minsky, who was an early AI pioneer, liked to say that AI was a suitcase word, saying that people would pack the term AI with whatever meanings that they brought to it. In other words, it, it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So, Yeah, but it, it matters also who makes that meaning or who has the loudest voices in articulating it. Because at the moment, the in the present moment, and for some time, the public understanding of AI, the kind of dominant social model of AI is defined by a few large profit-seeking corporations and occasionally by the military, neither of whom are really the entities that should be in charge of you know, the powerful ideas within our society that have the potential to make new worlds. So I think it's really crucial that there's um, uh, the suitcase gets bigger, perhaps, and more people get to put things inside it. Oh, yeah, I'm with you on that. Um, and I'm glad you brought up the the power dynamics here, because that, that was a major theme of your earlier book, New Dark Age, how, for example, power dynamics are made visible by looking at the maps of undersea fiber optic cables that map to the old uh, colonial empires and exploitation that in some ways continues today. It was a great book and, and a fun interview. People can go back and listen to it. But exactly that, the power dynamics are still very much in play as we are seeing new versions of AI and other digital technology come at us and become infused in all manner of things in our, in our society, our work, our lives, and, and so on. And then we get to this idea that we've been talking about, about legal personhood. In, in a way, what are the creations in this world, on this earth, that deserve a special kind of standing or respect? One thing, if I understand right, you're arguing in the book is that humans are not the only species that merit that kind of respect. For that matter, an individual human is a combination of many species to begin with. And then we move on to other species like happy the elephant and the iguanas and slime molds and so on. And I'm with you on all of that. I mean, you quote indigenous writers and thinkers, and one of whom, Tyson Yunkaporta, author of Sand Talk, has been on this show making a similar point that comes from his tradition in Australia. And then we get to artificial intelligence, or whatever we want to call it, however, however we conceive of that. To me, these digital creations, these computational platforms that yes, are able to carry out certain tasks better than humans. They do it in a strange way and so on. They have their place. They have their time and place to be used, some of them. I mean, much of the stuff that comes out of these big tech companies should be thrown in the garbage right away. But there are certain uses that have certain narrow, helpful outcomes. But even if I focus just on those narrow, positive outcomes and technology, I cannot bring myself to elevate a digital creation now or tomorrow or in 10 years to the same level of rights and standing as a happy the elephant or a person who is full of other species. Because in my understanding, or really to my belief, I guess, these digital creations, James, are not actually alive. They are inert tools that were made by other consciousnesses, but they themselves are not sentient beings. And I sense that you might see things differently, but, but tell me, if we set aside the, the toxicity of big tech today, if, and it's a big if, if we can get to a point in technology where these awful 
monstrous companies are not dominating everything. And we actually do have some more holistic thinking that's infused into technology. Do you think we'll reach a point where there's some sort of AI or digital creation that does merit legal personhood? Um, I think it's undoubtedly something that will happen one way or another at some point in the future. I think we're a long way from it right now. Um, I agree with you that the, the, the systems that, that exist in the present are inert, which is not actually a bad term to describe them. And, and also, crucially, I don't consider intelligence alone to be a criteria for personhood. Uh, very far from it, in fact. There's whole other discussions about life and about consciousness in particular, which is a very different, separate thing to intelligence and not something that I really talk about in the book at all. You know, intelligence is, is one quality by which we might recognize the existence of a subject, um, but it's certainly not the only one. And, you know, in the book, I mostly talk about machine intelligence as a way of understanding the qualities of intelligence, not necessarily the ways of understanding qualities of beings. But I think it's, or it seems to me evident that if and when some kind of more general intelligence, artificial, big quotes, arrives, general artificial intelligence, it will not be inert in the ways in which we understand it to be now. I mean, one of the big things I talk about a lot in the book is that any kind of intelligence will arrive, novel forms of intelligence will arise in concert with the world. They will be alive in certain ways. They are likely to be in part biological, at least engineered biologically, because they will only arise as intelligent beings if they are part of the world themselves, if they're embodied in certain ways. And I understand embodiment to be not a requirement for personhood, but probably a requirement for consciousness, which you know is, is part of the background to this. And if you look at some of the, you know, the deeply weird stuff that's going on in kind of artificial life and the kind of construction of viruses and bacteria that we're essentially able to create and program at the you know, genetic level now, that's only going to increase. And that's, you know, that gets into very science fictional places quite rapidly if you start to think about kind of culturing an AI rather than programming one, then suddenly all these discussions about it being a kind of inert digital thing that you can turn and off, they go out the window. And you are talking about something that that's much more hybrid than a brain running on silicon, but is also still as something constructed by other consciousnesses. So I, I think it gets a lot, lot weirder and far, far too weird to rule out personhood for artificial beings of all kinds. But I, I don't think anything that, that I'm aware of that exists in the present really qualifies. So we can sleep easy for now, knowing that there's no constructed sentience. I don't think that's what we should be worried about, but I wouldn't be sleeping easy either. <laughs> well, a, a few years ago, I had Toby Ord from Oxford talking about his book on various catastrophes and giving the odds of the extinction of uh, human life based on, you know, an asteroid impact versus a virus versus, uh, I don't know, a super volcano. And interestingly, I interviewed him just before the pandemic hit. And he did say in the book that he, the second most worrisome uh, outcome would be a virus. But his number one fear in his book, uh, which was called The Precipice, was runaway artificial intelligence that takes over the world. And I remember telling him, I just don't see that happening. And like you just alluded to, I think we have much greater uh, present fears that we should be working on. Well, on the other hand, I think, as I sort of outlined a little bit in the book, uh, it, it, you could also say that it's already happened. The fear that's often expressed about runaway general intelligence by a certain set of the population, which tends to be educated white people working in technology, is a sublimated fear of capitalism combined with the fear of the other, uh, which is a really pretty terrifying combination when you think about it. It makes them all want to um, buy bunkers in New Zealand. Yeah, right. And, and any excuse to do that, because they know the damage they're visiting, visiting upon the world, and they're desperate to blame it on, on runaway AI, rather than understanding that the kind of AI that they envisage is a natural outgrowth of the kind of work that they're doing in the present moment. And in the book, I'd quote the science fiction writer, Charles Stross, who says that essentially uh, you know, general artificial intelligence is already here. It's corporations. They are large, complex organisms 
uh, with sensors and effectors uh, that um, respond to pleasure and pain, that adapt to their environment, and also crucially have legal standing, personhood and protected speech. And if you want a model for what the future of AI personhood would look like, then you should look to how we treat corporations in the present day. And that's a pretty good reason for being worried about the development of AI, because if they, if they have all the rights that corporations have, which they are likely to, because they resemble them so closely, that's a, that is a genuinely pretty terrifying view of the future. But a, a more terrifying view of the present is, is, is one in which the, the destruction of the Earth is brought about not by a supervolcano or by an asteroid or by imaginary computer programs, but by the fact that we're burning loads and loads of carbon and it's destroying our atmosphere and poisoning the Earth. And we're doing that already, and we don't need any kind of like mad predictions about the end of the world. Uh, we need to address the ones that we're already causing. Yeah, and that present fear of the impact of climate change and that future fear of runaway corporations and their AIs, they're all part of the same system, the growth-at-any-cost system. My nightmare scenario about this artificial general intelligence is that in, in a few years, something gets created that's digital or maybe hybrid, who, who knows, uh, genetic engineering with, uh, with a chip inside, and they say, this is the new life form, this new synthetic life form that deserves your respect and your care and legal standing and, and rights and so on. Inevitably, in the trajectory that we're on right now, James, that synthetic life form will have been built by one of these monstrous corporations. And they will use all of their PR at their disposal to try to paint this as a beautiful uh, new flowering of life. And they'll use a lot of the language that you've used in this book. And I feel like I'd, <laughs> I wish we could nip that in the bud now because I really don't want to have to go through that. Um, I mean, sure, they'll use these arguments because they're good arguments. Um, <laughs> but like, they, that, that's not an argument against those arguments. Like corporations lie and cheat and do all kinds of terrible things now. <laughs> like look at the history of greenwashing and disinformation around the effects of oil and gas exploration and carbon emission and all of these things. They're always going to do what's in their best interest. It's not going to stop or change that if we decide not to take the reality of non-human personhood and livelihood seriously. It's just not the way to go about it. The reason those things will emerge is because they are being created in the present moment in a broader society, not just in corporations or, you know, whatever your opinion of capitalism or, you know, the way in which these tech companies and others operate, but they are, they, they're existing in a society that permits that to happen. That doesn't value the life of other beings. And so they are raised within a kind of particular ecological niche that is deeply committed to, you know, violent competition and success and growth overall, as you say, which isn't really just limited to tech companies or really to, um, to corporations in general, but is, is kind of a fairly encoded value of our society at present. And the only way that we will avoid that particular nightmare scenario, if, you know, society stays around in its current coherent form long enough, which is by no means certain in order to achieve it, is, is by building a society which has different values and therefore creates, you know, uh, future super intelligences who are more interested in cooperation and co-survival and uh, mutual flourishing than they are in, you know, beating us at chess or, um, you know, running corporations more efficiently. Well, that is a very, very optimistic vision, and I can only hope that <laughs> that it takes uh, that it takes shape. I have my own counter proposal. If we could just replace each of the five big tech companies with its own giant slime mold, have the slime mold make the decisions, the computation decisions, and it'll be much more empathetic to all life than the algorithms that they have today. Well, I mean, uh, one of the my favorite images in the book is that of the cybernetician Stafford Beer doing a kind of presentation to his employers, the you know, US Steel Corporation 
in the 1960s when he'd been building this computer in his basement that was basically made out of kind of like pond slime and water fleas and and basically proposing to replace the entire middle management of this corporation with you know the depths of a pond uh, and it's such a beautiful image and he, he was kind of entirely serious that this was how it should should operate so this idea has been around for a while but you can understand why it hasn't uh, quite come in yet but that image of the big five tech corporations being replaced by slime mold is one that I'm utterly committed to. Though it wouldn't just be slime molds, you know, you need some trees in there, you need a bit of forest, uh, you need you need a few different animals, behavioral differences. You, you want some kind of arboreal species and some ground dwelling species in there, some birds and some fish. You need the world in there at the top of the pile, contributing new ways of thinking to how we run the planet. Because that's how the planet has always worked far, far more successfully than when we've been in charge of it for the last few thousand years. And we need to get back to that kind of relationship um, as soon as possible. As you write in the final sentence of the book, the only way forward is together. I've really enjoyed this discussion, James. The book is Ways of Being, Animals, Plants, Machines, The Search for Planetary Intelligence. James Bridle, thanks for being back on Tectonic, and I hope you'll come back again sometime. My pleasure. Thanks very much and hope so too. And we're back. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Tectonic on WFMU. My name is Mark Hurst. I'll be your host for the remaining... 15 minutes of the show, and then I want you to stay tuned for Spin the Globe with Eva, coming up at the top of the hour, followed by Vocal Fry by the great Dan Boda, followed by brother Daniel Blumen from 9 to 12 midnight Eastern. Just, just stay tuned. Just stay tuned to WFMU is, is what I can offer you as advice. And I want to say thank you to James Bridal for coming back on the show to talk about ways of being, animals, plants, machines, the search for planetary intelligence. And I hope you could detect in that interview that we were trying to search together for that planetary intelligence across all three of those. And as I said, I was, I was well aligned with Bridal on the animals and plants and I think it was, for me, it was um, really interesting to dive into the uh, similarities and differences in our outlook around machines. Uh, and I think, I, I mean, I, I, I learned something from speaking with Bridal in the interview, and I certainly learned a lot from, from reading Ways of Being. And I may have changed my mind just a little bit, which is always a, which is always a good thing. I mean, I came into the interview thinking, well, as I said uh, to Bridal, I just cannot foresee a time in the future when there is going to be any kind of uh, digital AI. I don't care how advanced it is. And the company that comes up with this thing, and it is probably going to be one of the big five big tech companies or something that resembles them, you know, in some monstrous form, uh, uh, these corporations that themselves are legally considered people. And the corporation is going to say, here is the, the new AI bot 3000. It's a new life form. And we're going to apply for legal personhood. And we're going to start habituating the public to treating our products with respect and compassion and even affection and love because they're essentially people and you should treat them that way. And that's, to me, that's the nightmare. In, in a way, it still is. It's the nightmare scenario when a corporate product is being normalized to the public as something on par with people and, and forget all of the, the need uh, that we already have to try to take care of animals and plants uh, and ecosystems and rivers and trees better than we do already, the big tech company's AI bot 3000 is going to try to leap ahead of all of those life forms 
and the companies are going to place their products at the top of the list. No, no, no. This robot deserves rights before anything and anyone else. A little bit, and I know Bridal said it was all a PR stunt, what happened to Sophia in, uh, in Saudi Arabia. But I think actually, in contrast, that might be a good model of where this nightmare scenario unrolls. That much like the Sophia developer said, oh, let's get Sophia uh, citizenship in Saudi Arabia way ahead of uh, all of the other human rights issue in, issues in that, in that country. Uh, similarly, we could see in this country, a Google or an Amazon say, okay, in a few years, okay, we have a sufficiently advanced AI bot. Let's go ahead and get citizenship for this AI bot and forget all of the other human rights issues and, uh, and environmental disasters that are going on and, and the needs for, for more rights for animals and so on. Let's make sure our AI bot is well treated by the laws in this country. I can foresee that. But where James Bridle changed my thinking a little bit is in the comment that, well, it may not be quite as simple as that, that it comes out as an AI bot 3000. It could be that something is brewed up in a lab that is organic in some ways and is based on uh, living forms in some ways and has some computation included or maybe has some, I, I, we didn't talk about CRISPR, but it could have some sort of human-directed uh, genetic engineering. In, in other words, the question is, at what point does something begin to resemble an inert life form versus something that is actually a living form that has been engineered just a little bit? I, I have a lot more reading and thinking and, and interviewing to do around this topic, so I, I'm, <laughs> I'm not presenting myself as having the answers. I'm just sharing with you uh, transparently where I am, where my thinking is. And it's, it's in flux. And I appreciate James Bridle for writing this book, Ways of Being and Being Provocative. And I hope you, the listeners, enjoyed the conversation. And again, if you are interested in the book, there's a link to it on the playlist at WFMU.org. Uh, or if you're listening in the future, go to tectonic.fm, T-E-C-H, tonic.fm and find the August 8, 2022 show. In other news, in the last couple of minutes we have left, oh, I just, I wanna say that I had so much fun last Saturday. This was uh, August 6, just two days ago. I uh, guest hosted Double Dip Recess, which is a music show on WFMU. If you, if you haven't heard it, it's a great show. The normal host is Roger, and uh, it's every Saturday morning from 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. Eastern. And it's nominally a kid's show, but really it's fun for all ages. <laughs> and I had a lot of fun. This was my third time guest hosting. And if you are interested in listening to uh, my guest, guest hosting of an actual music show, you can find that link on tonight's playlist as well to the August 6th Double Dip Recess. Um, what else can I tell you? Well, speaking of... AI and sentience and other intelligences and so on, I put a link on the playlist to an article from August 5, this is last Friday, by Cade Metz uh, at the New York Times. It's called, AI is not sentient, why do people say it is? And here Metz is really arguing my position, which is, uh, as Metz writes, quote, robots can't think or feel despite what the researchers who build them want to believe. And then uh, Metz talks to Alison Gopnik, who is a professor of psychology in the AI research group at Cal Berkeley. And Gopnik says, quote, the computational capacities of current AI, like the large language models, don't make it any more likely that they are sentient than that rocks or other machines are. And what, what Gopnik is saying there is what I also believe, that the, the, these AI language models, they are not sentient beings. They are simply advanced computational statistics. That, that's all it is. If you had a sufficiently large uh, spreadsheet 
that could carry out these mathematical functions at scale, you would get something very similar to what these AI, I don't, I don't know if it's GPT-2 or the DALI image processor or even this, this uh, ridiculous Lambda uh, thing, this chatbot that uh, Google came up with and this now former Google engineer, Blake Lemoyne, uh, was was fired from Google last week, I think it was. But Lemoyne had claimed that, uh, oh, looking at the chat transcripts with this chatbot that I worked on, I think the chatbot is is sentient, which was just plainly r ridiculous. Um, and here, Cade Metz has written a, a whole piece that's talking to other researchers, basically backing that up and saying. What, what I think is that when, when these researchers who are playing with these chatbots long enough, uh, when they develop this tunnel vision and they develop their own level of affection for their own creations, then naturally enough, they begin to believe that they, uh, finally, they are the brilliant genius, the first in history who have created actual life, actual sentient life. And it, it just ain't so, sorry, sorry. What you have there is a giant spreadsheet. Uh, but but have fun programming it, I guess. Um, the other thing, and I'll, I'm gonna have to dive more into this in a future show. A couple people have sent me the news, uh, which I, I certainly saw, but th always thank you for uh, sending me these headlines. Amazon has bought the company iRobot. And uh, iRobot, Unlike uh, unlike what the uh, company name may suggest, and the Isaac Asimov uh, short story is based on, iRobot does not yet create machines that it claims to be sentient. iRobot is mostly known for the Roomba, this um, this automated vacuum cleaner that rolls around, and um, you want to keep it away from pet droppings at all costs. I don't own one myself. Uh, but Amazon has bought the company, and so Amazon is now the owner of all the Roombas. I did cover this a few years ago on the show, that Roomba was found to be uh, taking measurements of every room in customers' homes and then beaming it over the Internet back to iRobot headquarters for um, un unknown opaque processing analysis and possible sharing. Well, guess who would love to take ownership of all of that surveillance data, and that's Amazon. And there's a great Verge piece from August 5th talking about the a very explicit desire on the part of Amazon to get its hands on surveillance data and what it's going to do with that. So yes, the Roomba now officially, officially is a surveillance vacuum cleaner. And if you want to know where to put your Roomba, go look up the Lower East Side Ecology Center if you're here in New York and uh, find when the next e-waste disposal day is, and that's where you should put it. And that's about all the time I have uh, for this evening. I wanna thank you all for showing up, and I'm gonna try to get, get into a surveillance roundup maybe within a couple of weeks, because there's a lot going on, not just around Amazon and Roomba, uh, but um, there is a new story that is uh, brewing that has to do, uh, I can't even get into this. It has to do with blood and um, it's chilling. And maybe maybe in two weeks, I'll do a surveillance roundup. We'll see. Uh, but thanks again for showing up. You have been listening to the greatest radio station in the world, WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope in New York City and Rockland County at 91.9 FM and online at WFMU.org. Uh, you know what I want you to do until next week, friends. I want you to avoid Amazon and Apple, forget Facebook, and whatever you do, get off Google. And I want you to stay tuned, as I said, for EBA and Spin the Globe. And really, friends, there is only one possible song that I could end this show with. And uh, this is a song by the great Moondog. And if you don't know Moondog, you've, you've got to dive into Moondog's music. But there is one, and some of you already know what song this is going to be. This is a song called Enough About Human Rights. Have a great week, everybody, and see you next time.